Good morning. The passage from the passage for today is Daniel 5 verses 1 through 12. The handwriting on the wall. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king now who the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, Rosalie. We're continuing our study in Daniel. titled the message today, Watching the Warning Signs. Now, as a way of introduction, I'd like you to imagine in your mind two businessmen sitting in an office in a large corporation that makes billions of dollars in America somewhere, and splashed across the news is uh, the story that that company is in, in, under indictment, that the leaders at the top have embezzled money, that they've practiced their business in a way that now they're going to be in trouble, there's going to be an accounting for what they've done, and, and the speculation is that they'll have to sell off parts of the company, and it's going to impact it. And these two guys are sitting in the office, and they're, they're wondering, how will this impact us, and, and are they going to carve off your Uh, section that you work under? Are you going to lose your job? And and they're wondering what's going to happen. And one of the guys uses the phrase, the handwriting's on the wall. You know what that means? You know, if you Google that phrase, the handwriting is on the wall, it means that something bad is going to happen. I can see it. That's what it means. And And here's the weird thing. If you Google, where did that phrase come from? Google today We'll take you all the way back to this chapter that Rosalie just read. 
That's where the phrase comes from. The handwriting on the wall, it means something bad is on the horizon. I can see it. It's going to happen. And that's what the story kind of centers itself around. And I'm saying to you that we need to be watchful for the warning signs because there will come a point where it's obvious because a hand has appeared and it's writing on the wall. And we want to know the warning signs before that to be able to respond in ways to... We don't want that to happen. And so we're going to look at this story in two parts. Today, I'm going to walk through the, the first part of it that Rosalie read, and I'm going to contrast three characters out of the story. King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've spent a lot of time talking about, King Belshazzar, which is the character now, the king, and Daniel, and how each of them have walked kind of a different path in connection to these warning signs. And then we will have applications for us today. So the handwriting on the wall, the first point I'm going to give you is cultural earthquakes shift nations. I, I would venture to say that all of us in the room can think of an image or two in the last few years that depicts something bad and the entire nation responded in a way that shifted it. It's like, what, what, the, the whole nation seems to be caught up into this and the response to it. <clears throat> and I'm going to tell you that in this story about Babylon, there are cultural earthquakes that shift the nation of Babylon. And I'm not going to give them to you right in this moment, but that's what this point is built around. And the first thing that I'm going to tell you, because Nebuchadnezzar, is a different leader than Belshazzar. And that's, that's really part of the narrative here. Because in chapter 4, where we, where, here's where we landed. In chapter 4, in our four chapters of Nebuchadnezzar, the last uh, phrase is Nebuchadnezzar saying, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. What a great statement. And yet, if you go back to chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar would have never made that statement. And there's something about the way God interacted with him in his life and the circumstances utilizing Daniel and his friends to bring him to that point. And Nebuchadnezzar's struggle was pride. You remember he's walking around up top and that was what happened to him? It's me. I built this for my glory. And then God humbled him. He took him through seven periods of time the Bible says, where, where he was made to be like an animal. He lost his mental faculties and, and, and was reduced to a guy on his hands and knees eating grass like an ox, his hair long, his fingernails long. And it wasn't until after that time that <clears throat> the Bible says he looked up to heaven and he regained himself. And then he makes these declarations, a whole section here where he is attesting to the true sovereign ruler of the universe, not me, it's you, how great you are, it's your will, and this utterances of him, very gospel-oriented. And Belshazzar <clears throat> is going to be different. And the interactions are going to lead to a different point and a different response. And that's how the nation is shifted. Because under Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> there, the, the nation existed 
in a different way than Belshazzar. And I want to point these out to you because in this little passage that was read, here are some of the differences. Number one, limitations on power ignored. You see in verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast. Well, that's, that's common. Lots of, lots of rulers did that. In fact, in Babylon uh, today, they've, they have excavated some of these areas. They found the great hall, and it is large enough to have thousands in it. And here he is having a feast. But it says, his lords, for his lords, and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded. And that phrase, tasted the wine, is connected to the command that he makes, the way that that's written. Now, what am I getting at? It, generally speaking, kings did not drink like this in front because the, these were guys that, that could just say, kill that guy. And then they would obey and have to do it. They could utter a command and it, and it would have to happen. So you don't want a guy to be under the influence and to utter things that they should not. So generally speaking, kings like Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, they would drink not in front of their lords like that, but in private, in, in smaller company. And yet we see him ignoring that practice that they normally would do. And look what happens. The very the very thing you wouldn't want to happen. It says, when he tasted the wine, he makes this command. And what is the command? That the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. Now, I put here that not only do we see kind of the limitations on power being ignored, but respect for other cultures is being undermined. An emphasis here is on the word vessels. And it says that, um, taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, that they be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, if you go all the way back to chapter one, when we, we, the first lesson I gave you, I told you I'm going to come back to something. So many lessons ago in chapter 1, when Babylon came and sacked Jerusalem, it says that they took out from the temple certain artifacts. And I said, I want you to remember that. We're going to come back to that later. And the, in that moment, Babylon was saying, that was, a, that was symbolic, that the Babylonian gods are more powerful than your God because we've come into your holy relics, your, your artifacts in your most holy temple areas and we've, we've sacked it, we've taken them and we're going to go like a prisoner and put them back in Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar, he puts them, he, he hasn't desecrated them in the way that Belshazzar is going to do. And you see that Nebuchadnezzar, remember this is a guy who, yes, he, 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 he's this dictator, but Oftentimes he spoke like this, every, people of every nation, of every tongue. Uh, he talked with this plurality, a recognition of the diversity of peoples that were living. And there's, yes, our God is number one and my power number one. But there was still this tolerance of, of recognition of the diversity of, of the kinds of people and their cultures. And Belshazzar is going to be different than that. He's going to have have an in, uh, a greater intolerance for it. But what we see is, this be the beginning of it is the undermining of 
of the, of the culture of the Jews to take their relics, to bring them out. It's like, I, I, in my mind, I think about the movie Indiana Jones where they, they go into the great warehouse with the, the Ark of the Covenant and there's boxes galore, you know, that go get the relics and they've gone down and they're looking in this great storage because they've conquered many places, right? But they're looking for the Jewish ones and they're going to bring them out and bring them up now. And you see this kind of the beginning here of how it's undermining what the, something that Nebuchadnezzar, a value that Nebuchadnezzar had. And not only this, but respect of public decency is abandoned. Because as I read through that passage, you may not have recognized it, but it talks about the wives and the concubines being present. So, great hall, all the lords, a thousand. We're going to drink, which is something that they didn't do normally, but also not normal. The women are there because the, the men, they segregated this usually. And what it means is if the women came and were present, it brought into it sensuality. Now, here's, a, here's an, an example of this. In the book of Esther, same area, region of the world, um, you have the king, again, in front of his lords, and there are no women. In fact, he says, go get my queen, and they bring her in, and he shows her off to all the men. But here in this scenario, they're mixed in together. And it, it's alluding to uh, the sensuality of this party. <clears throat> in fact, one writer was saying that, described it this way, Belshazzar's feast was a sensual celebration without limits. One by one, the men drank themselves under the table. And add to this, the overtones of sexuality provided by the presence of the wives and the concubines and what you have is a drunken orgy. And there's, there's a sense here that the, the just public decency has gone over the line in what it used to be. Now, I already began to kind of poke at the next one, which is intolerant religious pride. And in verse 4, it says, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And each one of those, like gold and silver, they are representative of a Babylonian god. And what they're doing is this. They're taking the Jewish artifacts, they're putting their wine in it, and they're using it to make toast. So he's standing up in front of them in this big uh, feast and drunken fest and orgy and and by using their wine in the Jewish uh, artifacts, they're, they're saying, we're toasting to our gods. It's in defiance to the Jewish God. And there's a way in which it's, see, Nebuchadnezzar was, was, I am number one, but he saw the diversity there. And sometimes there was a conflict, but the Belshazzar's approach is, is in so much more direct contrast to point their finger into the face of God, to, to do things that are, that are sacrilegious to other religion. And it, it's, it's a different level. There's a great, uh, 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 an increase in intolerance there. It's directly religious in nature. And I put here then the next is the stubborn personal pride. So you have... Um, Gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone in descending order, the greatest gold there. This directed to religious, but 
in the heart of Belshazzar, you see a different kind of pride, a different kind of pride than what Nebuchadnezzar had. See, Nebuchadnezzar was prideful, right? It's because of my glory. Yet God was coming at him, right, and breaking him down. And when he had to go through seven time periods like an animal, it changed him. And he looked up, and out of his mouth came a recognition. It was, it was a humility there. I am broken. You are the true sovereign. And Belshazzar has a pride that is so much hardened towards God. I mean, the finger in the face of God through the artifacts is one thing. But later in the chapter, we'll... we'll Come to this next week, but I'm going to give you a sneak peek. Over in verse 22, Daniel is talking to him, and he says this, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, praising, basically saying, you're Babylonian gods. His direct finger in the face of God and his pride. And just before that verse, Daniel was reminding him, remember Nebuchadnezzar, your father, he was made low like an animal. And you know all this. You know that history. And despite that knowledge, you still have this hardness in you right here against the true God. It reminds me in the book of Revelation, in fact, when I read this, my mind went to the book of Revelation where God's judgment is coming down on the earth and the people living there at that time. And it is, it is the apocalypse. And it is a time where if you're living there, you're like, you, you should be crying out to God in humility, recognizing the decay of the world and the sinfulness of it. And yet, despite this, this is the response Revelation 16, 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. And then later again, it says people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. There can be a pride within a person so strong that no matter what God does, they are not going to turn to him. And that's part of the message of this. And why I, I want to contrast the different responses between Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Daniel. Now, there's something else I have to say, because this next piece I give you will show you how prideful he was. Because I talked about these cultural shifts within Babylon. So chapter 4, at the end I read to you, where he says, his great, where Nebuchadnezzar utters these things that are gospel oriented. You are the true sovereign and anyone who has pride, he's able to break. Remember that? Then you go from that verse to chapter five, verse one, and it's Belshazzar. But what you don't see in there is there's 20 years that have transpired. And it's not a, it's not a direct succession from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. They have found over a thousand manuscripts of antiquity that tell us what happened in those 20 years. And there's a series of, of political upheavals, assassinations. One guy takes over, his brother assassinates him. A child is put in charge. Um, one leader goes into battle and dies. Another leader, 
actually, a guy alive at the time of, chap of chapter 5, verse 1, his name's Nabonidus, he's the actual ruler. He is the ruler, not Belshazzar. They're co-regents. He's the father, and the son is Belshazzar. In the chapter where it refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the father, the actual word there means someone who has preceded you in your family line. There's no exact word in, the, in Chaldean or Hebrew for grandfather in that way. And we know this through other writings, what has happened in these 20 years. So Nebuchadnezzar is a grandfather, not the father. But what happened is you have Nabonidus who becomes the ruler, co-regent with Belshazzar. And the Medes and the Persians have invaded. So this entire party that's going on, the drunk fest orgy, if they were to go up onto the wall, the same way that Nebuchadnezzar walked around and said, look, uh, this is all mine. If you went up to that same spot, do you know what they would see? They would see an army encamped outside of those walls, ready to sack the city. And what are they doing? They're not preparing. They're down having a party. And it, it, it's, an, it's a testimony to how deep their self-confidence and pride was. Not only that, but to point their finger at the God. Oh, you got an army outside our gates? We're going to go take your holy relics and desecrate them and have a drunken orgy in front of you and point our finger in your face. That's how hardened they were towards God. In fact, just to give you a little <clears throat> description of Babylon here. Walverd writes that their pride in their deities may have been bolstered by the magnificence of the city of Babylon itself, interpreted as an evidence of the power of their gods. Herodotus, who was a historian, gives a glowing account of Babylon as a monument to the genius of Nebuchadnezzar and undoubtedly a source of much pride to all the Babylonians. According to Herodotus, Babylon was about 14 miles square with great outer walls, 87 feet thick and 350 feet high with 100 great bronze gates in the walls, a system of inner and outer walls with a water moat between the walls made the city very secure. So broad and strong were the walls that chariots four abreast could parade around its top. Herodotus pictures hundreds of towers at appropriate intervals reaching another hundred feet into the air above the top of the wall. They had immense confidence in their own security. And not only that, but some of the writings say that they had stored up as much to 20 years worth of provisions. Come on. Lay on the siege. Are you going to hang around for 20 years? That's the kind of attitude they had. And to further that, there was a river that flowed under the wall, so they had a water source. They had a water source. They had provisions. They had the mightiest walls. And they're going to thumb their nose to God because they're confident in themselves and what they have built. And that's the pride that exists in Belshazzar. Now, The second part to this, I've titled The Constancy of God's Faithful. We've looked at Belshazzar, and I think that the heart of Belshazzar you're seeing reflects 
the culture of the people. There's been a shift in that nation. And here we have Daniel still. And when we read this, so, so they're having their party. They're thumbing their nose to God. And in verse 5, it says, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote. Now that's, that's got to just blow you away. It's like this image, ghostly, I don't know. It's like it appears. Okay? And, da- and, and uh, Belshazzar goes back to those group, the same group of magicians and Chaldeans, bring them in. They don't know the answer. But I remember Nebuchadnezzar was like, bring them in. Okay, where's Daniel? Bring Daniel in. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? It said, at last, Nebuchadnezzar, at last, Daniel came. Daniel's going to know the answer. But here's my question is, where's Daniel? Because look what has to happen, right? The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom. And she's going to tell him about Daniel. And here's my, so as we look at this, so the contrast has been, look at the character of Belshazzar. Now I'm going to tell you, look at Daniel. Daniel, who again is an example to us, right? And the thing I want to tell you is in this moment, he's in his 80s. He's in his 80s. Some people say he's approaching 90. So we've seen him from, from a teenager into his 80s. And what you find is this consistent character through his whole life, a constancy of faithfulness. And that's the thing that I'm going to place out on us as believers in Christ, the need for that. And what do we see in Daniel? A man who still hasn't compromised. As she describes him to Belshazzar, the spirit, who is this man? The spirit of the holy gods. So there is this man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. You cannot be a representative of the holy God in their eyes if you are a person who is unholy. And so there's a testimony there of him walking with character. He has not um, broken that. And do you, you recall, right, our lessons on Daniel? We, we used as an example the basketball player, NBA basketball player, A.C. Green, who, who went into the NBA as a virgin and said, I am going to stay that until I find my wife. He played his entire NBA career and upheld that until he found his wife after his career. And when he went in, he was told, oh, you'll fail. Wait till you see the women. The temptations are too great. Yet he was uncompromising. And this is Daniel. Daniel who has not just one or two years or three years or five years or a decade, but his whole life of constant, not compromising. A man who still hasn't compromised, who represents the holy God. And you need that, right? Because Jesus says, we are the salt. We are the light. And in that he says, the light shouldn't be hidden, right? And salt can become saltless and good for nothing. There's a way in which our, we can lose our saltiness because we've, be, we've been mixed in too much with the world. And there's a way in which Daniel, he could give himself to Babylon over and over again in such a way that he's, they, they can't tell the difference between him and Babylon. You've lost your saltiness. And I'm going to come back to that, but I want to show you the next one, which is he's also a man of discernment because as she describes him, she says, 
In the days of your father, this Daniel, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. He was a man of discernment. These are words that describe decision-making. Light, light points. If in darkness I can't see, I don't know where to go or to make decisions. A man of light, a man of understanding, a man of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is, can be found here, but wisdom is I take the knowledge and what do I do with it? Wisdom is you take what you know and how you use that knowledge. The Bible says, for example, if you're a young person in here, I remember growing up, my father taught me this. He took me to Proverbs, and he showed me all these Proverbs. Bad company corrupts good morals, Proverbs says. There's some knowledge. That means if I choose friends that have bad morals, they're going to corrupt my morals. So I better make good friends or choose good friends. That's knowledge. Wisdom is I take the knowledge and I make decisions with it. I choose friends then that the Bible's led me to to make. And you could do that over and over again. There's a lot of counsel that the Bible gives us for how to live our lives. Wisdom is you take that counsel and the decisions that you make demonstrate that God's Word actually is number one in here. And Daniel was that man. I mean, the biggest part for why he rose up had to do with that. He was a man of great discernment. A lot of his approaches with with the head eunuch and the, the chief of the guards, he just used really, he was good at making decisions for how to deal with situations. He was also a man good at his job. It says your, fa- your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. Remember, that's that elite class. And he was the chief of them. He was over all of them. What were the qualities that gave him that job? She says, because, he made him chief because, verse 12, an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. That's a good resume, right? What are those? Excellent spirit. You know why he was a chief? Because it wasn't just that he could get things done but he got them done in a way that he had a good spirit for how he interacted with people. Sometimes people are good at getting a job done, but nobody likes working underneath them, and he can have no influence on them. An excellent spirit has to do with how you interact with people, a gentle spirit, not a hard spirit. Daniel had that. He he was going to defy king's orders, and that the people over him, it says, liked him. That helped in the situation. A capacity to learn. Remember, he went to school for three years to learn all the Babylonian stuff. So the way I interact on this is God gives all of us a different uh, capacity here. We can all, not all of us could become a doctor or a, a mathematician or an astrophysicist. Okay, we all have different levels in that sense, capacity to learn. But what do you do with it? Do you take with what God has given you and you strive to learn, to be the best in the field that God has placed you? Daniel was that way. He had a specific skill set because it said his, the position needed to be able to deal with dreams and interpret dreams. He was good at that. There's spe- spe- specific skill sets like that. And he was good at problem solving. So he's a man good at his job. And I keep saying this throughout the series. 
If we're going to have an influence on culture, then we need Christians who are out in the culture who are good at their jobs because they, they tend to be people that will become into offices of influence where big decisions are made. And God uses those people like Daniel. Daniel became the second highest guy because he was good at his job and a man of character. He was also a man available on God's time. So I kind of gave you a little bit of this, that there were these political upheavals, assassinations, and, and people dying. And Nabonidus, by the way, who is the uh, actual ruler, went out to meet the Medes and the Persians in battle and lost and is now a captive. So that's part of the story. Belshazzar, here he is having this feast. He's like the number two guy. And the number one's a, 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 a prisoner of war. And that even adds to the whole aspect of thumbing your nose at the situation. Your number one is a prisoner of war. But Daniel's lived through all these, and I think it's interesting that he was the number two guy, and then when this situation comes up, like, the wife has to come forward and be like, hey, there's this guy, Daniel. Like, he has, he has dropped, off, his dropped off into obscurity. And that can be hard for us as Christians. As Christians, we, we want to do big things, and, and maybe God gives success, and, and we're striving, and, and God blesses, but then we, there are things outside of our control. What happened at the political level was not totally under the control of Daniel. And he found himself now in a position where he couldn't influence as much as he could before. And that can happen to us. When we're trying to reach a culture for Christ, you need to understand that sometimes it goes like this, the ups and the downs, and yet he's still available. And I, I, I also look at him in, in his old age. Why is he not off into retirement on some tropical island, right? I did my time. You know, uh, I don't want to go back to that political environment. It's stressful. And yet he is available. He's called on again, and he's going to find himself again thrust into the limelight. He's available for God no matter the time. And I put here, too, he's a man whose fate is shared you should really absorb this one. Because if the Medes and the Persians sack the city, there's a chance Daniel dies. There's a chance that he ends up in prison or everything he's built in his life is burnt up. And this is why it's so important to understand our calling as missionaries in a culture. When we put on the sign out there, when you drive out of the parking lot, it says, serve the city. If the city does well, you do well. I changed it to village because we live in Guam. We don't have cities here. We have villages. If the village does well, you do well. There's a symbiotic relationship between us and the places we live. Jeremiah, remember he stood up and told the Jews, the Jews, the exiles come into to Babylon and they're like, we don't want to be where the Babylonians are. Let's go create a subculture that's Christian. We don't want to mix in. We'll lose our spiritual identity. The Babylonians, come on, live here. Become like us. And Jeremiah stood up and said, you go live in the city. You're going to be here a while. Get married, have kids, build houses. Have a life that's Babylonian, but keep your spiritual identity. If I build a house, I'm going to be looking for a contractor. I'm going to be having to have relationships with people 
who are Babylonian. And when you have these interpersonal relationships with Babylonians, you're tie, you, you tie in with them in, in, to a certain level. We don't want to be, become like them in the sense of all their values and spiritual identities, but I want them to do well because I live here. They're my neighbors. If the city falls, there are God's people in that city who will suffer. If the city does well, they do well. And there's a way, there's a sense in which if God's placed you here, do we really seek the good of the island? Or are we here to build just our own life? And one day we're going to retire. I don't care if it all goes to hell in the handbasket as long as my life is good. But we have a relationship with the places we live. We want them to do well. We serve in a way to try to help it be the best it can be. A man whose fate is shared with Babylon. Sometimes God comes and he puts his hand around his agent even when the city falls. But it's not a guarantee. It's not as if every believer in Christ, if Babylon falls, some spiritual bubble comes around them like a force field that they will not be touched by the suffering of that city. And we need to understand that one of the reasons God tells us as missionaries to live in the city is to, to help to see it do well because we share its fate. It's earthly fate, I should say. And lastly, I put here, he's a man at peace with that fate. Even though it might burn. Look at the contrast between him and Belshazzar. Do you want me to read it again? Belshazzar, it says... Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked. How's that? I've got all this pride, but then somehow something that's otherworldly has just appeared, this hand, and I just realize my finiteness. My, th there's a power out there bigger than me, and it scares me. And now I'm reminded of the army that's out there that could sack the city. His, his color changes. His knees are knocking. And in comes Daniel, you're going to see next week. He's a man at peace. The city might fall, but my eternal destination's not here in this city. My eternal destination, my citizenship is heavenly. And whatever fate that's earthly that befalls me, it's not my ultimate fate. My ultimate fate is heavenly. And you get that out of Daniel. You get a contrast between them. So, so far what we've seen is this. There's been a shift in Babylon, a shift between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, political upheavals where the values have gone even further in a direction that are worse for God's people but we see that living in that city, there are consistent followers. Daniel, his friends, and how God uses them to bring about a better Babylon. Uh, without which, sometimes the whole city's lost. I mean, I, I circle back to this often, the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God's going to destroy the cities, right? But there's this argument that goes on. With God, if there's 50 righteous people, will you save the city? I mean, if I can find 50 righteous people, don't destroy it. Okay, uh, how about 40? Uh, how about 30? Uh, 
How about 20? Uh, how about 10? I mean, it almost blows my mind. If you can't find 10 righteous people in two cities, and there's a message there, right, that God's looking for His people. If He would save two cities because there's 10 righteous people, then we need to have a presence in those cities that's righteous. And see, Lot lived in those cities, and the New Testament says he was a righteous man, but he was saltless salt. He couldn't reach anyone. He couldn't even reach his own family. And if we live like Babylonians and have no impact, then there is a possibility that one day God's judgment comes on the city and we see the suffering of the nation or the city because we haven't lived up to our calling. And that brings me to the end, the last point, which is we need to be watching for warning signs today. We're going to talk a little more about the fate of the city next week. But we can draw three quick points here. One is this. This has a modern application. <clears throat> In the same way that there were cultural earthquakes that shifted Babylon, there are cultural earthquakes that can shift any nation. And when we think about America or we think about Guam or the West, let me read through these Babylonian earthquakes, and you tell me if there's any similarity to things we see today. There are limitations on power that are ignored. Respect for other cultures is undermined. Respect of public decency abandoned. Intolerant religious pride. Stubborn personal pride in citizens. And I say that in all of those, I see a shade, some, some stronger shades than others, in the cultures that we live in. And any nation can be judged by God. We would be naive to think that we'll just keep going on forever and God will ignore the sin that exists within a nation. And God chose this time to judge Babylon. And we need to live with that in mind, to live as the citizens he's called us to be, to stave off that very thing. Secondly, there are historical applications and prophetic ones that tie together. I'm not going to wax too long on this because it deals with some of the other prophecies that will come up, the visions of Daniel. We'll get to talk more about these. But, but to say that there will be an end to all Gentile nations, there will be. And when you go in the Bible and you look at what the end looks like, you start to go, how do we, this is what the world is now. How do we go from wh where we're at now to, to what the Bible says is it's going to look like at the end? There's going to be some changes in the world. And particularly the church. What is the role of the church in all of that? But lastly, I put here, there's a personal application. Don't miss that. The reason why I have emphasized contrasting how Nebuchadnezzar responded to God moving in his life. Nebuchadnezzar was Babylonian, and yet God, the way he approached his pride and sin, drew out of him responses that are, that are gospel-oriented, uh, the complete opposite of Belshazzar. Belshazzar was so hardened in pride that he thumbed his nose to God. And then Daniel, who was faithful. And, and there's a way in which I want to say that, what is God writing on your heart then? Their struggle was pride. What is our struggle? What is your struggle? And God gave Nebuchadnezzar a whole year. 
He's going to give Belshazzar one night to respond. I, it's, he's sovereign. I don't know how much time he gives. He is patient and he's gracious, but he pursues his children and will try to draw out of them the, the, the faithful responses they should have. And there's a way in which, at the end, you can say, to ignore God's word is to invite the finger of God into your life. Father, I thank you for this lesson, for this story. I, there's so much to draw out of it. We've tried to focus on what it means to us personally, living as missionaries in a culture, but then also, Lord, just personally, our, our relationship with you. Nebuchadnezzar responded. He was hard and you broke him. His last words were, you are able to break pride. You are able. You are able to break any sin that is alive in us. And in one way, that should create a joy in us to know you're a father who is capable that won't lose us, but it also, there should be a fearfulness. Because if we continue on, like Nebuchadnezzar, he ended up seven periods of time wandering like an animal. We can stave that off. We don't have to go through that if we respond now. Belshazzar, he was just hardened, Lord. He, in a sense, he hated you. He was a lover of licentiousness, of sensuality, of worldly possessions, and he would abandon you in a heartbeat for those things, and we're going to see what happens to him, but then there's Daniel, Lord, faithful. There are Daniels in this room. There's Nebuchadnezzar's in this room, and I, I just pray that you would utilize Daniel's as agents to reach out to the people who live on this island, a man of character, able and available in your time, who recognizes the relationship that we have as citizens here. We share the fate of Guam. What happens to Guam happens to us. If Guam does well, we do well. And loves the people of this island, like Daniel did. He pleaded to Nebuchadnezzar, please repent of your sins. Even though he was a dictator with character flaws, he loved the reprobate. And I pray that we would love the reprobates that live in Guam, that we would give our lives away to them. And we would serve your community, strengthening our brothers and sisters to have a stronger presence, Lord. Salt and light to this island. I lift it up in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll finish worshiping together. Please all stand. We serve a God that is not made of wood or stone or even gold or silver or iron.